When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yo, what is going down, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Show me the westerns for the third week in the row. Oh, that's it. That's it. Is this a western, though? I mean, famously, somebody just came out and was digging in this, saying that this isn't a western. Oh, so God, now we got get, You're getting right into it. I'm huh? getting s- straight into it. Straight into the controversy. What's up, everybody? I'm Austin Hayden, and I'm joined by the Show Me the Meaning bro, not crew today, <laughs> but bro, Raymond. What's up, dude? Yeah, we are we are entering the drift once again. A little uh, little two man podcast here. That's it. That's it. And honestly, I mean, I feel like we could tackle Westerns all the time because so much of contemporary, especially American, but definitely Western cinema is Western adjacent, right? So um, we could say that we are talking about a theme that we've talked about a thousand times, but I think there's something really fresh with talking about this film, The Power of the Dog, directed by Jane Campion. It just came out. It's getting nominated for all kinds of awards. It stars Benedict Cumberbatch, Kirsten Dunst, Jesse Plemons, Cody Smith-McPhee. Um, it's It's got a lot of attention, and most recently it stirred up a little bit of controversy, which was my illusion at the very beginning with Sam Elliott um, basically yeah, coming would, out and ripping this film. The movie sh- I don't think the movie stirred up controversy. I think that an old man said something dumb or whatever. Well, here's the thing. So I saw this at the Sydney Film Festival and what people were talking about was the ideas that it brought up. So maybe not that it stirs up controversy, but it pokes the bear a little bit. It provokes some kind of dormant long-held, presumed ideas about masculinity, about the West, about America, um, all kinds of different things. And so in that sense, I mean, it's a, I think it is a provocative film. In a, in a way, but I also think there's, you know, it's kind of tough to escape comparisons to Brokeback Mountain um, as another yeah. movie about, uh, about gay cowboys. Um, but I, I, I think that it is... We're we're a long way from that film because I just remember the just the constant drum about that movie about it being like a, a disgrace and it's a, a, a disgrace to the genre the great you know genre of westerns and and how how dare they uh, depict cowboys as gay etc etc just there was so much hand wringing about that back then and I I just feel like this movie until the Sam Elliott thing I don't feel like this one has felt as provocative as that you know 15 years on not that that should have been seen as provocative Brokeback Mountain you know it's a, a, a wonderful film and obviously it, th- that kind of discourse was being led by the loudest dumbest voices in the room but <laughs> it, it, it is I, I do think that this one is maybe just because it hasn't had the same kind of like theatrical phenomenon kind of effect that that broke back mountain did which was like a really big surprise hit when it came out um but it just you know it, it, that that is one small thing i can point to as a, a a silver lining is that like the sam elliott thing is the first i've heard of anyone really you know lodging a complaint or or being all ignorant surrounding this so I guess then let's do this. I mean, normally we go around and we'll do first impressions. So let's just um, jump right into it. But actually, real quick before we do, I just want to do some housekeeping stuff. Make sure you follow us on Twitter at SMTM underscore POD. That's SMTM underscore POD. You can also email us at movies at wisecrack.co, movies at wisecrack.co. You can call us at 1-213-534-8807, and you can leave us a voicemail. Uh, we're going to be doing a mailbag session here, or a mailbag episode in um, the next few weeks. So get us your thoughts, ideas, fan theories. What do you think about this film? What do you think about stuff from our back catalog? and check out culture binge other other wisecrack stuff but uh yeah so let's jump in and let's talk about first impressions i mean i don't know how many times you've seen this film but um i guess yeah so how did it land 
Yeah, I mean, I, I watched it a couple months ago. Whenever it, um, whenever it landed on Netflix, there, um, and I thought it was fine. I, I, I didn't think it was mm. uh, really anything special. Um, I think the performances are good. I think it's it's well directed. I think my big, the big thing that that kind of keeps this movie at arm's length for me, at least, is that I I just think that Jane Campion, while while a wonderful filmmaker is just maybe not a good fit for this material. And you, uh, I'm curious how viciously you'll disagree with me on this, but I, I think that this, I haven't read the book, but having watched the movie, this feels like it, it could really benefit from like just a touch of griminess, you know, I like, mm. I, 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 I would have really liked to see like, you know, uh, Jennifer Kent's take on this or someone like Lynn Ramsey and you were never really here mode with, <laughs> with Joaquin yeah. Phoenix in the Benedict Cumberbatch role. Fuck. Like I, yeah. I, I, I wish there was someone behind the camera with this, not that Jane Campion doesn't do a fine job, but I, I wish it was just a little more claustrophobic, a little more tense, a, uh, you know, a little bit mm. more insular. Um, as it is, I think it's a perfectly fine picture. Um, like I said, the performances especially, uh, I think, are, are solid all around. Um, but it just kind of leaves me wanting more. It just, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't really stick with me all that much after I'm finished with it. But uh, I don't know. How do you feel? Honestly, the exact same. I was actually, yeah, I was talking about this with Matt, our producer, before we started recording, that I really great, went great, in. Great, great, great producer. We love Matt. Great. The, the best producer in podcasting, tied only with Maddie, who also produces Owls at Dawn now. So, you know, the, the best two producers in the game. Um, but honestly, we were talking about how we both really went in wanting to kind of love this movie. You know, I, I told you, uh, I think previously off air, that I saw this at the Sydney Film Fest. You've and been- was the first three times on the podcast you mentioned it once last week and <laughs> twice this week now it, folks he wants you Bro. to know he's a he's a he's a big time hollywood big shot this was the first time not the first film this was the first time that i had gone out of my house to do something sure. social after the pandemic so, so my you, partner and you i had all these expectations you were really building in. <laughs> And we're fucking masked up in the theater. It's hot and claustrophobic and sweaty. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because I I wouldn't say I loved the film, but I did find a lot of stuff really intriguing to dissect. And so you just said something that's really interesting about how you thought maybe if like Lynn Ramsey uh, directed it and someone like Joaquin Phoenix were in the Benedict Cumberbatch role. At first, my instinct to that was Maybe because my initial issue was that I didn't love Benedict Cumberbatch in this. Hmm. There was something I didn't believe it or whatever. But then upon reflection, I think I get the choice because the choice of this character is not a grimy, um, dirty, embodied. I think Joaquin is a little bit too earthen and Benedict Cumberbatch is a quite a bit more cerebral. And um, I think the the tension there of a man, the character that Benedict Cumberbatch is playing, Phil, who is a cerebral, educated, Ivy League educated man who also has repressed sexual desire, but is playing the role of the kind of stereotype of what it means to be a man in sort this of time period. And, yeah. yeah, and it felt it felt forced to me, and I think it kind of fits with some of yeah. the tensions that the film is exploring. You it's know, one of those so tricky Joaquin performances would almost of like too play, good playing a yeah, person yeah. who's playing an idea of a person in a way. You know, there's there's a certain nuance to it. I think Benedict Cumberbatch is good in the film, um, but I think my head went to Joaquin Phoenix just because, like, not necessarily that I want that character to be grimier but just the movie itself just this is a very a very pulpy sort of uh text you know it's this is a Mm. movie that you know spoiler alert ends with a kid revenge killing someone with a an anthrax laced <laughs> lasso like which is oh, very shit. it's very harlequin novelly like it, it like there's something very lurid about that it is. um and yeah, i haven't yeah. read the book I, I i would like to i've heard it's very good um so i'm i'm curious how it scans on the page because i i can see this working better on the page in a way just because that's a, a little bit more insular uh, of, of a medium but I don't know sorry for cutting you off no that's perfect yeah I mean so I guess my summation of my first impression was that 
I think I was hoping that it would hit me a little bit more. Um, I just saw Jane Campion, Western. Love Jane Campion as a filmmaker. Yeah. Uh, Westerns are my jam. I, I think I just was hoping that it would be revelatory. V- VIP right? at Sydney Film Fest. You saw, of course, you know. Hey, you did, I, so I saw this. I saw this at Sydney Film Fest, and um, <laughs> um, okay. So let's before we start unpacking this, let's uh, go into a, a quick rundown of the plot. Okay, so it's 1925 in Montana. There's a wealthy ranch-owning pair of brothers named Phil and George, and they meet a widow who also owns an inn by the name of Rose during one of their cattle drives. The kind-hearted George is quickly taken with Rose, while the volatile Phil is uh, kind of influenced by this this mentor figure named Bronco Henry, and he is not so kind, and he ends up mocking Rose's son named Peter because he has a lisp in a bit of an effeminate manner. So George and Rose end up getting married, and she moves into the ranch house and is able to use George's money to send Peter to college to study medicine and surgery. Phil takes an immediate dislike to Rose, believing that she's only married George for their money. Uh, Phil's rough ways and taunting manner ultimately unnerve her, and one evening, George organizes organizes a dinner party with his parents and the governor, and George intends to introduce his guests to Rose so that they can meet Rose and hear her play the new piano, um, which is an instrument that she kind of is like, I don't really play that well anyway, but they kind of coax her into it. Uh, During the party, though, Rose is rattled by Phil's earlier belittling of her skills, and she's unable to play more than a few notes, and uh, she gets further humiliated when Phil mocks her about her practicing, Um, so she kind of dives deeper into drinking alcohol, which is something that she previously was opposed to. Now, by the time Peter comes to stay at the ranch for the summer break, Rose has become a full-on alcoholic. Phil and his men taunt Peter, and he basically locks himself in his room. He brings home a rabbit that he's caught, and that kind of delights his mom, but then she finds out that Peter has killed it and dissected it. And so in um, later in a, a secluded clearing, Phil masturbates. I mean, is it clear that he masturbates or is it implied that he masturbates with Bronco Henry's scarf? And Peter enters the clearing and he finds a stash of magazines with Bronco Henry's name on them depicting nude men. And he observes Phil bathing in a pond with a handkerchief around his neck. Phil notices him and chases him off. Now, Phil begins to kind of start to show decency to Peter. He offers to plot him a lasso from Rawhide and teach him how to ride a horse. And So Peter kind of goes along with it. Uh, Peter heads out on his own one day and he finds a dead cow from which he cuts off pieces of its hide. And while working on a fencing job, Phil injures his hand, clearing the wood. Now afterward, Peter tells Phil about finding the body of his alcoholic father who had hanged himself and cut the corpse down by himself. And he mentions that his father told him that he was not kind enough and Phil kind of scoffs. Rose's alcoholism gets worse and worse and worse. And especially because she sees how much time her son's spending with Phil. And so after she learns about uh, Phil's policy of burning the hides that he doesn't need for himself, she defiantly gives the hides to a local Native American trader who thanks her with a pair of gloves. She then collapses with her radical alcohol consumption and George tends to her, throwing out the bottle of bourbon that she's been hiding. Phil is enraged over not having any of the hides that he needs to finish Peter's lasso and he attempts to lash out at Rose before being stopped by George. Now Peter calms Phil down by offering him the hide that he had cut from that dead cow, but without mentioning that the animal was already deceased, that the animal was already deceased when he encountered it. Phil is touched by Peter's gesture and promises him that they will have a much better relationship in the future. The pair spend the night in the barn finishing the rope and Phil's open wound and the hide mixing together in the solution used to soften the hide. Now, as the two share a cigarette, Phil tells Peter about how Bronco Henry saved his life one time by lying body to body with him in a bedroll during freezing weather. But Phil doesn't answer when Peter asks if they were naked. When Phil does not show up for breakfast the following day, George finds him sickened in bed with his wound now really infected. And so a delirious Phil looks for Peter to give him the finished lasso, but George takes Phil away to the doctor before Phil can hand the lasso over. George is then later seen picking out a coffin for his brother who has died. Now at the funeral, the doctor tells George that Phil most likely died from anthrax, but that puzzles George because Phil was always very careful to avoid diseased cattle. Peter, who skipped Phil's funeral, opens a book of common prayer to a passage on burial rites and then reads Psalm 22:20 that says, "Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling from the power of the dog." Later, he puts his finished lasso under his bed with gloved hands 
And as Peter walks down the hall, he stops at a window and watches George and a now sober Rose return home and embrace, and he turns away and smiles. Dun dun dun! But before we continue, I gotta give a quick interjection. We gotta shout out our sponsor, Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning community where you can connect with other like-minded people and creatives and where you can explore projects that you are passionate about. And this is why Skillshare is really so cool because you can do all of this and you can unleash your creativity and you can pursue your passions, but right from the convenience of your own home. They offer thousands of classes for creative and curious people on topics such as iPhone photography, drone filming, editing, classes for improving productivity, uh, artivism, which is, you know, like the intersection of art and activism, and a lot of stuff that I've been doing recently, which is on like digital design, UX, UI, the ethics of design. Um, they do some really cool stuff. So go check out all that they've got to offer and you can explore your creativity and connect with some cool people in the process by going to skillshare.com slash smtm that's skillshare.com slash smtm and the cool thing is is if you are a listener you're going to get a free trial of their premium membership so if you want to get a free trial of their premium membership go to skillshare.com slash smtm or click the link below all right so um, let's get into this here. You did mention that the the plot is a little bit pulpy. Um, so the insinuations does one like so it's pretty clear like he kills Phil. Peter kills Phil. So he kills him by poisoning him with anthrax from this diseased cow. The question is, why does he do it? And the reason I want to start here is because I think that this kind of touches on pretty much all of the themes that this film. Are, that this film is exploring. So, one, why he did it. Did he do it to help his mother in an act of revenge? Um, sure. Uh, did he do it to kind of put Phil out of his misery as a man who no longer belongs in the world and who is dealing with this repression? Possibly. Um, I would say almost then, certainly not. <laughs> to that uh, no? You don't think so? And I then, okay, so, and then... And then a, a possible third option is did he do it in an act of his own repression that he has to kill Phil so that he doesn't have a similar mentor relationship like Phil had with Bronco Henry um, because he was a person, uh, a young person disjointed in a world. So those are kind of three different things that like I wonder, right? And and I think some of them contradict um, because also the question is, is, is he... Is he himself like? Are we are we to to think that he himself is gay, and um, or is it is it not? It's just that he's portrayed in the part of like the stereotype of not being man enough, and therefore um, Phil kind of lashes out at him because of that. But but anyway, like these are kind of some of the questions that are coming up in in my mind. So what do we think? Well, I think that um, some of our listeners may get mad at me for being like somewhat reductive but i uh, i just thought it was because benedict cumberbatch is an asshole like i it, it was <laughs> and i mean i i say that and obviously there's layers to that but i didn't i didn't come away from this movie thinking like wow where did that come from why on earth would this kid that benedict cumberbatch spent the first hour of the movie completely terrorizing uh, po- why? Why on earth could he possibly have wanted to kill this guy? Like the, he has, <laughs> he has a very sort of cavalier and um, uh, sort of a clinical relationship with death, as illustrated by uh, the scene with the rabbit in his room. You know, this is this is someone mm. who is like he's capable of taking a life. Is that you know? Is that the same as a human life? For some folks, probably not. Um, but it it doesn't really seem like that much of a stretch to me. I'm I'm not left scratching my head like, oh, what were his motives? I honest honest to God, I came away from it like, oh yeah, he just <laughs> Benedict Cumberbatch was a a really toxic and uh, uh, dangerous presence for both him and his mother and basically uh, everyone that he comes into contact with and 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 he found it a really easy way to kill him and it just and it's one of those things where like I don't necessarily know how premeditated it was it you know I, I think that I think that it is intentional but I don't think he spends the entire movie plotting out like oh wow I'm a it's sort of a crime of opportunity you know is it mm. his hand got ripped open I you know I have 
access to this diseased cowhide. He happens to be in a situation where he he wants some cowhide, and I can, I you know, I can just knock him off, and it'll be this easy, and I don't even have to get my hands dirty, really. And it's it, it is one of those things. I think to the extent that it is an an interesting or or subtle uh, decision on his part is just that question of like. I'm sure that there's a philosophical framework for this, Austin, that notion of like, oh, I don't know, if you could go back in time and kill baby Hitler, would you? And it, mm. and I think a lot of it, a lot of it boils down to like, or, or the trolley problem thing, like how, how many weird hypothetical conversations have started with that notion of like, could you, would you be capable of killing a truly evil person? And under what circumstances, like, would I have to brain them with a cudgel or could I just press a button, you know, like in uh, the Richard Mm. Matheson story and someone somewhere, someone that I don't know will die. And that to me is maybe the extent to which it's really interesting uh, uh, when it comes to his... um, his motivations is just like I don't know. Did this did this kid really consider what it means to take a human life, or is this something that he just has a, a clinical distance from and won't really reckon with the actual sort of emotional consequences of that until maybe after the film has rolled credits? Yeah, that's why I think it's interesting that maybe there are layers to this, right? So I mean, at one at one, the immediate is sure Phil sucked, like. He's abusive. He's denigrating. He even gets all of the fucking other ranch hands to come in and pile on. Um, He's just a fucking bad dude. And then on top of that, he berates Rose. And so Peter is witness to how this is affecting his mother. It's uh, plunging her into alcoholism, which is something that she's been against. And why? Why? Because Phil can't come to grips with some repressed desires. Phil can't accept his um his own identity or his own stirrings or things about himself as an educated man who's also a wealthy man and who wants to be a ranch man so there are these kind of different identities that he's moving through like these different narrative positions that he's moving through and so that's why i also wonder then so at the surface level it's clearly revenge but then is there also a sense in which it's kind of it's kind of a mercy killing it's kind of putting this guy out of his misery, right? Like, Phil can't accept who he is. And you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me again of stuff that we've talked about a bit in the last couple of weeks. We talked about it with Michael last week. We were talking about The Ballad of Cable Hogue, which is a story about a person who is historically disjointed, a, a, a man who belonged in a previous time, right? And I think you get something similar here with Phil, is that Phil can't deal with the fact of being disjointed by these larger processes of historical development of you know kind of like shifting identities technological development um familial development george brings in somebody else and starts a new family and that kind of like seems to threaten phil not just because of money but also because of like the dynamic and power of the household and his his hold over George too, right? Like his hold, because George is more of a passive soul. So so it's, so I also there's a he's a, he's a man disjointed, and so there's a sense in which it's kind of like a mercy killing. And then I wonder, I wonder what this means for like Peter's own inner life himself. Like, are we meant to think that he too has? Um, desires that he's able to tap into and that he's able to access and express. And that's part of the reason that Phil doesn't like it because it comes out as, you know, being interested in flowers and design and things like that. Um, I guess the question is then is are we meant to surmise that those are like um, expressions of, of homosexual desire or is that even too kind of abstract and reductive? And that there's another sense in which, um, you know, the, the the Peter character is kind of more robust in in who he is, and and that maybe he's even struggling with that, and so he has to kind of he has to knock this guy off because um, he doesn't want to get stuck in that same kind of pattern 
potentially, you know, like the, because then I, I'm, I'm kind of thinking this Bronco Henry relationship with Phil was probably a bad power dynamic, you know, it probably wasn't like a healthy, like, they were just good friends, it was probably tumultuous at times, even though in retrospect, Phil looks uh, uh, with like high regard to it, as you often do with like a father figure, you know, even though you ignore the trauma that's there. So that's, I'm kind of wondering if there's those layers. I, I mean, I think it may be reasonable to, to assume that uh, regarding uh, Phil's past or his relationship with Bronco Henry. Um, as far as the, just to double back to the mercy killing thing, I, I think the reason that's difficult for me to latch on to is that maybe that's something that's animating him on a subconscious level or who knows? I mean, Cody Smith McPhee could give an interview tomorrow and say that that's how he interpreted it. (laughs) Um, as, as far as my interpretation of it is concerned, I don't really perceive while Benedict Cumberbatch is a violent, repressive asshole. For me, a mercy killing is something that sort of it, it connotes a sense of like self-destruction that like oh i'm uh, i'm going to you know drown this person to save them from the rain like this uh, i don't really while he has like emotionally self-destructive tendencies and while you know he represses his inner feelings and lashes out at people and and has a tough time you know just dealing dealing with that sort of thing and and it may manifest in really uh really toxic and abusive ways i don't ever i I don't think the movie is is sending that signal that this is someone who like needs to be saved from themselves so much as they are like Mm. a local antagonist they may be nuanced and, and layered and there may be reasons for that antagonism but I, I don't think the movie ever characterizes him in such a fashion that w- would lend itself to that interpretation. Once again, that's just my interpretation. As mm. far as some of the other stuff you were touching on, I do think that maybe there's a bit more there's a bit more meat on the bone with regards to the sort of displacement of the center of power within this family. That mm. uh, as as Jesse Plemons. Um, you know, becomes beholden to Kirsten Dunst and uh, her son, and he feels this sense of familial obligation towards them. It it does throw off the power dynamic, and it, it does threaten uh, Benedict Cumberbatch's supremacy within that domestic sphere. That you know. Jesse Plemons is no longer just a yes man who's going to defer to him to protect his feelings. You know, it's it's one of those things where like he has other people to consider now, and uh, I I can definitely see how that is. I mean, that's that's not even a stretch on our end. Like that, I think that's very much baked into no, the relationship the dynamics yeah. in this movie. Um, so I, I, I mean, I, I guess this is the thing that I, I guess I sort of just need to come out and say is that I don't think this movie has a whole lot that it leaves up to interpretation. I think we can, we mm. can sit here and, and kind of, <laughs> you know, offer conjecture when it, when it comes to, or as it pertains to their, their internal lives and their thought processes and stuff. But, you know, for example, Kirsten Dunst, her her journey from teetotaler to alcoholic is like very much just it just happens and it just happens right in front of you and they telegraph it. They oh I don't I never touch a drop of the stuff and then she has this really a really great scene where she has this emotional sort of nervous breakdown at the piano and then she turns to drink and that's where like the glass is broken and you kind of just know that that can really only proceed in one direction and it does yeah and and so there's there's a lot of stuff with this once again that's not to denigrate the film or anything I I just don't think it's a terribly unsubtle film other than we can uh, we can kind of cavil about the uh, the the real underlying shades of uh, of uh, of their motivation and such but at the end of the day like i said i think i think the kid killed him because he's an asshole <laughs> like it just yeah i'm glad i'm, I'm glad you're bringing this up because i think I'm starting to I'm starting to have more self awareness about like why things resonate. Benedict Cumberbatch with me. is an asshole, not Cody Smith McPhee, but sorry, go yeah, on. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, yeah, no. I know what you mean. Um, and we've talked about this, and I think you you pointed this out a few maybe like a month and a half, two months back. 
um, about like why certain films resonate with me, and it is that there's there's a poetry that I'm attracted to, and um, you know, uh, one of my acting teachers once uh, had said that you know like all that matters when you're doing performance is that you maintain the what's going to happen next in the mind of the audience. As soon as the audience stops being invested in what's going to happen next, um, then that you've lost them, right? And I think one of my one of my frustrations with a lot of media and a lot of cinema that gets made today is there's not a lot of deep and really robust what's going to happen next. A lot of it is spoon-fed. We might think oh, what's going to happen next? But then it comes and we're kind of like, oh yeah, I mean, that was already, it was already baked in. It was already there. It was already a possible. And the philosopher Omri Bergson talks about the problem with the possible is that the possible is already kind of present in um, in, in the present, right? It just has a level of reality that's added to it. So it's not really new, right? Whereas when you think about the possibilities of the virtual, I mean, maybe even saying the possibilities of the virtual is, is using words that I shouldn't use, but he talks about the virtual or the philosopher Gilles Deleuze takes this. Deleuze wrote two books on cinema for people who are interested called The Time Image and The Movement Image. But um, uh, this idea that there's 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 a an unknown that is more novel and new than possibility. Um, so if I think about possible options for where this film was going to go, it's pretty much baked in from moment to moment, right? There's there's nothing truly revelatory. There's nothing truly kind of, oh shit. There's nothing truly that makes you ponder and think, wow, how does this transform my world? Unless you do some heavy lifting and you start kind of like looking at some things like you're talking about, like really d- delving into the psyches and shit like that, which is, I'm fine to speculate on because to yeah. me, I think that's fun. I think yeah. that's kind but of I think what you're right. of this podcast a lot of the time. You know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and but I think you're right, and I think part of the reason, maybe, why I didn't love my viewing experience of despite this, it being at the Sydney which, Film by Festival, the way, which was at the Sydney Film Festival, <laughs> um, um, uh, I think part of the reason was because it was slow, but it didn't intrigue me enough and like call me to like new heights of thought. Whereas like a, a Tarkovsky film is slow, but I'm always like what just happened and where are they going to go with this and what are these ideas and what's the content, you know? And and I didn't quite have that because I was just constantly fed conveniently these really kind of more simple payoffs. And I think maybe that, that was kind of part of the problem of the formula of the film. If I think if Ryan were here right now, he he would probably say like, but you guys love the writer, you know, or, or something. He might mm. call that up and say, like, what makes what makes that movie work for you as opposed to a movie like this that, in your words, is either slow or ponderous in a way that doesn't really feel rewarding. And I think the reason or one of the many reasons that the writer works for me is that in those more quiet and ruminative moments, they're they're making you lean in and they're they're not they're not laying out a clear a clear emotional or or mental path for brady like he's he's just a naturally stoic person played by a naturally stoic person and there is a sense of like you know to come back to the question of self-destruction there is that not at the the center of the writer is like what compels him to continue doing this deeply self-destructive thing and this this thing that he can't let go of that he loves so deeply and i think there is just something naturally compelling about that in a way that this movie has plenty of beautiful quiet ruminative moments or or moments that are coded as such would be yeah yeah yeah. it's not it's not really precipitating any big reveal it's not it's not hinting at any like otherwise concealed character aspects it's it's not it's not lending itself to a sense of mystery and intrigue as you said it it really just kind of feels like and this comes back to my core criticism of the film it it feels like jane campion wanting to show some really beautiful kind of Jane Campion-esque shots. And <laughs> and that's the thing is like, I think she's a wonderful filmmaker, but I, I just, I just don't think she's the right fit for this for that reason that I think this movie 
could really thrive on that tension the the sort of like the 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 thickness of the quiet moments that you want to be able to cut with a knife but instead it's like we keep cutting outside and deflating that there's no there is no sense of like claustrophobia and it doesn't it doesn't really feel like these characters are trapped which is maybe one of the reasons i reject your notion of this being a mercy killing mm. cuz a mercy killing feels like the, the sort of eventual end game of a yeah. character that has boxed themselves in. Um, and, and so that's, that's one of the things for me with this is that like, once again, I haven't read the book. Um, I'm, I'm curious, uh, wh- uh, how it feels, how it reads, because when I, when I watch this, I think that's the big thing that's missing for me is it just, it never feels like these characters are on the pathway towards totality or inevitability. It doesn't feel like tragedy. It it just it kind of is, is sort of like structured like one without any real sense of inevitability baked into the cake or dread or, or however you want to define it. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yeah, I wonder too, like when, when, when Peter kind of, so he kills Phil and he turns and he kind of smiles at the end. And we kind of get that call back to how he, like, killed a, a rabbit. Like, were we meant to be like, oh, he's the dude's a serial killer? Like, that's kind of like the pulpy interpretation, right? The pulpy interpretation is like, oh, this motherfucker's going to be a serial killer. Like, <laughs> you know, like... I, I think there is... there There is kind of a... I'm trying to think of another example of this in media because I'm, I'm sure that one will pop into my head as soon as we stop recording. But I, I do like the notion of... Phil projecting this sense that's Benedict Cumberbatch right Phil yeah he projects this sense like you said of the masculine ideal the the sort of Mm. romanticized version the Marlboro man you know (laughs) yeah yeah so he projects that even though he's maybe not comfortable in his own skin and there's some shades of nuance to that performance and someone who is so so like it may not it may be slightly outside of his element but he understands the role that he has to play and how he fits within this power dynamic or or this narrative dynamic being completely blindsided by someone who does not play by the rules of the old west who does not believe in the romance of the old west who fucking hates it out here and is just like no i won't beat you in a duel I'll just kill you when you're asleep. <laughs> like there is right. there is something cool about that in a way that notion of like well yeah, I mean if he if he played Phil in in uh, Pirates of the Caribbean there's that great line where he goes in a fair fight I would have beaten you easily and Jack Sparrow goes, "Well, that's not much incentive for me to fight fairly." And right. Phil is someone who's like, you know, you may not like it, but there's a code. There's a there there's a, mm. a, a romance to the West. There, like men are men, and men look each other in the eye when they shoot at each other. And Cody Smith Murphy's like, actually, fuck you. I'm just gonna poison you. And like you're utterly unprepared for that person showing up within this romantic mm. paradigm. So I do think there's something interesting there, but it's only kind of like you only see glimpses of it. You, you none of that ever gets like pulled out in a way other than like I said, there is there is that kind of interesting clinical remove that he he has from the rabbit when he's dissecting it um Mm. but you you never get the the sort of like dexter in the west or or whatever Mm -hmm. sort of uh thing you may be hinting at or implying yeah what what is it do you think um this is another kind of thing that i i didn't understand like the turn why does phil decide to take peter under his wing like what was the catalyst there? Was it just because he saw an act of graciousness from Peter? And so then he's like, okay, well now I can take him under my wing. Or is it that he sees that like 
that like maybe in the same way that Bronco Henry maybe maybe was maybe I don't know I'm just totally speculating here but maybe there was like a predatory like grooming relationship that, with Phil and so yeah it may be ungenerous but that's kind of how I interpreted it that Phil was essentially kind of like oh this there I now have this sort of glimpse of a, a like-minded person, or, and I may be able to, I, I may be, may be able to sort of reclaim the power in this relationship through through that, and you know, uh, and and by appealing to to his own repressed desires, um, and that's that's how I interpreted it. But once again, that's probably the easiest read of the film. Um, but also, once again, I don't really know if this movie is often demanding that we give it anything other than the the easiest, most objective kind of read of it. I, I my big takeaway from it was even not necessarily that like uh, it, it it has to be steeped in the notions of like grooming or predatory behavior but whatever ambiguity there is regarding Phil and Henry's relationship I think it amounts to that question of like well are are they gay or was this just a, a sense of companionship a sense of longing you know that's one of the beautiful things about Brokeback Mountain is is like how that starts as just it almost feels like just two guys who are lonely and 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 see something in the other person that they they understand them they understand where they come from and it just kind of naturally evolves in a really beautiful and intimate way and then they discover it almost like they discover their sexual orientation through each other rather than like living with this repressed sense of sexuality yeah. their entire lives so I, I think there could be some of that in in this. I, I mean, I dare say there absolutely is some of that in this. But I, I yeah. definitely read it as him having kind of the intent to, uh, to to groom him or at least seek some kind of companionship or at the very least someone that he can he can be honest with and open with and not have to play this character. It's interesting. I just just because I just recently read something from someone who was like a colleague of mine um, from back in the day, but. There's this scholar that used to be um, a scholar of like psychology and philosophy, and has transitioned and is now like a trans author. And I think I think she works in like fucking design or something like that. But anyway, um, did a PhD or ABD at least in like philosophy and psychology, and, and she wrote a book called Transgressive, like Transgressive. Um, her name's Rachel Williams, and. Um, she was talking about the difference between like the Acorn theory of uh, like emergent desire or emergent identity versus um, what she calls like the butterfly and caterpillar form. And I thought it was really interesting because uh, it's kind of stuck with me. And she says like, you know, I, I refer to kind of my transition in terms of choice, but a lot of times people don't like to think that because they like to think, you know, it's like I was born this way and it was something that was always repressed and always there. And she said, that's more like the acorn theory, right? Like um, Aristotle famously talks about like this idea of teleology that like in the acorn, the oak tree is there, right? Like, and it's just in a, in a germinal form. It's just but, in a latent uh, state. Was, and, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Rachel Rachel, though, likes to talk about, like, the butterfly idea that, like, you have to actually die before you can emerge as a butterfly. So the caterpillar, when it goes through its stage and its its cocoon, its chrysalis, whatever it's called, when yeah. it goes through that stage, it literally fucking gets dissolved and dies and then is, like, recombined in a new way and then is a butterfly. And it's only after the fact that retroactively it can look back and be like, oh, okay, so there was something there. But it was a very different experience than, like, the acorn one, right? And, you know, Rachel's obviously not trying to denigrate either experience. But I think there's something interesting here that you kind of maybe get that as well in, yeah. in this film. That Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's it, like a, imagine that. Someone put it far better than I, I possibly could have. But I think that's really <laughs> beautifully stated. And I, I, I do think that's illustrative of how, uh, of how uh, like I was saying about Brokeback Mountain, how certain relationships are depicted on screen and, and certain orientations or awakenings happen within the context of a narrative. Um, and how that stuff kind of unfolds. I, I think that's really beautiful. I'll have to uh, I'll have to look yeah. up some of her work. Yeah, it, honestly, it stuck with me. Um, here's the thing. We've been talking a lot about Phil and Peter, but we haven't talked a lot about George and Rose. So yeah. um, what do we think about that dynamic? Like, I love Jesse Plemons as an actor. I think he's fantastic. Yes. I love Kirsten Dunst. Um, some of my favorite films actually have her in them, like Melancholia being one of them. Mm -hmm. um, I think she's, yeah, she's one tremendous. Of my, one of my all-time favorites, yeah. So and, and here's the real, thing. real quick before we get to the characters, yeah. just I want to second your Jesse Plemons love. I think 
genuinely one of his generation's finest actors. I think he's phenomenal. Um, but uh, but yeah. go, go go on. My partner, when we were watching this, after we left the Sydney Film Fest, she turned <laughs> to me and she... You can't do it when I'm drinking. <laughs> she said, she said, she was like, I didn't, she's like, I love Jesse Plemons and I love Kirsten Dunst, but I didn't necessarily love the kind of like typical manic woman who falls into alcoholism trope thing, right? So I, I wonder, like, was there enough buildup to make her transition like like organic or did it seem a bit tropey did it seem a bit kind of like someone was pulling at, at at caricatures and then kind of created a character that that wasn't as as robust maybe as it could have been otherwise i think like i said before i think it seems a little bit telegraphed um but i think she's so good in the movie i can see where your partner's coming from that maybe it, it feels a little bit cliched or uh, or archetypal or, or however you want to uh, qualify it but i think she sells it i i mean i i think it's mm. uh, i think it's well acted like i said though it just doesn't doesn't really leave a whole lot up to the imagination it doesn't ask a whole lot of the audience um and i also think though that the movie maybe wouldn't gain all that much by us like having to put those pieces together. Um, so more than anything, I maybe I agree with your partner insofar as like, you know, sometimes movies just don't give certain characters a whole lot to do. Um, mm. But I also think you could maybe you could maybe say the same about a lot of the characters in this film. I know this is a pretty short book, Um and I do, I do kind of wonder. A lot of it is, like I've been saying, it's 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 all kind of A to B to C. Um, and there are wonderful scenes and sequences within that, but it just, you know, it just, it, it, it all just kind of happens, and and that's that. And mm. and I I think that yes, on the one hand, I could see how how maybe she's not given a whole lot to do in this film, other than kind of like you know sit around and and glower nervously and. Um, uh, and and eventually take to drink, but there's also, I mean, Jesse Plemons, who I think is also great in the movie. He he's also not given a whole lot to do other than kind of yeah. sit around and glower, and then like yeah, that's how I felt. eventually support Kirsten Dunst. <laughs> like, yeah, I kind of I kind of thought that we were supposed to like really be invested in this man who has like this object of desire and then um brings her into the home and and for some reason i think i don't know i didn't i wasn't as seduced by their by their dynamic and then by by the inclusion of them into the home like i know it like fucks up the finances and the power dynamic and stuff like that but but even that i had like it was there intuitively but i, I I've, I've had to like put that to words upon reflection rather than really feeling it like I, I don't know but but i think it does it kind of pulls a little bit of a trick on the audience in a way because the sort of tension that exists between benedict cumberbatch and jesse plemons regarding his relationship with kirsten dunst feels like the thing that may result in some kind of conflagration mm. and so in that way I can kind of like I maybe get what's happening with those two that they're not given a whole lot to do because it allows Cody Smith McPhee to sort of like swoop in at the end and be the man of action that maybe the movie is setting you up to think that Jesse Plemons is or at least your your preconceived notions of westerns is maybe setting you up to to think that Mm. Jesse Plemons might be the one to have the 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 final say with his brother um yeah so in that way it's kind of it's kind of sly and subversive um and I can appreciate that about it but it it still (laughs) like I said it just it still just feels sort of rote It, it just Hmm. It, it's it it all just kind of happens as presented and and i just don't like i said it's it it's a fine movie in and of itself but it it just doesn't really leave me i don't leave the theater thinking about it and and turning over their their motivations and stuff i feel like i'm just saying the same thing over and over and over again it's probably <laughs> I, just, I just don't find the movie all that remarkable or, or dense like like we've said a thousand times there's a lot that's boiling under the surface for each of these characters but 
it, it, you know, we they make it pretty clear what those things are. They express them pretty clearly by the end of the film. So, yeah, I, 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 I don't know. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know if this is true or not, but I, I was thinking about this a little bit ago about, like, what is it that, that makes the poetic so creative, right? Like, and why are people drawn to poetry? And I don't just mean that in the sense of, like, the verse of actual sure. poems, like Walt Whitman or something. But what is it about poetic, you know, the, the idea of poesis, making, doing, right? There's something about that, that word and that, that idea that is so um, powerful and potent. And what is it? And I think that part of it is that it does two things, at least, right? That it kind of, like... It forecloses and then it explodes. It explodes open. So it like it like takes words and it puts them together in these different arrangements, and you get novel meanings. Or it takes images and it brings them together in juxtaposition or hyperbole or satire, and it 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 so it brings together and then it creates a world, and then it explodes it at the same time. And there's this constant action. And so you keep talking about the the not feeling of the claustrophobia and what i wonder is 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 there wasn't maybe enough of a of a foreclosing like a, there wasn't enough of a clear bringing together of the tensions that then would allow for the revelations to explode and so what you get then isn't so much of this like uh, I, if for people who are, can see a clip, if you're seeing a clip right now, my hands are like a, accordion. I'm like an accordion, like the in and out, of, like a real big in and out, like a big poetic thing would be like a real contraction and a huge explosion. This one just does like little, little ones, right? Just like little movements. And it doesn't really create the tension and then explode the tension and then create the foreclosure and then break open and disclosure, you know? And so maybe that's kind of what's going on. I'm just trying to kind of put my finger on what i you know like what's the logic here like yeah. i don't I, I don't want to be too too like too harsh about the movie or anything because i do like i said i i do think it's a perfectly adequate film but i i don't know i mean maybe i just have i just kind of feel a little bit like little miss sunshine a little where <laughs> I, I, oh I it's a perfectly adequate what was the yeah <laughs> no 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 and i i don't mean i don't mean to because i i do think this is a better movie than that but it, it just doesn't it doesn't leave a lot up to the imagination and it's not mm. it's not like entertaining and engaging enough in the interim for that to not be a problem <laughs> okay <laughs> like, then let's do this then, then let's do this. Like, not psychoanalyze in the in the like the the deep sense, but let's like just superficially psychoanalyze why this film is getting so much attention and so much award love. Then, so why do you think that? Why is it resonating at the level where the sort of like biggest corporate party in the world wants to reward it with attention? Is it just because people love Jane Campion and they love westerns and they love the cat? Like, it's like it's why? nice to see Jane Campion uh, working on the big screen again, uh, and I I uh, I say that in in all honesty um but i i mean why is it getting a bunch of awards tension i i don't know who cares like how how many how many fucking mediocre movies get awards tension every year like we we talked about this on little miss sunshine i mean like it's i don't really think of the oscars as really being a, a metric of of what is interesting or intriguing or even the most innovative within the cinematic landscape. I mean, this, it, you ask, why is this movie getting awards t attention? I mean, this, this to me feels like the exact type of movie that gets awards attention. It's, mm. it's a, a lovely austere drama that's really well directed and, and really well acted and doesn't, doesn't really challenge you in any meaningful way. It just, it looks the way pictures ought to look and uh mm. it, it you know it feels the way pictures ought to feel and and like despite whatever you know fucking sam elliott might have to say it's it's a very very like old-fashioned drama and it, it 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 feels like ah you know someone someone made them like they used to and uh, that, like mm. I, I don't know who who knows why the fuck movies get nominated for awards but this is the kind of movie that gets nominated for awards all the time is just perfectly average dramas that people will completely forget about as soon as the trophy is handed over um i mean yeah I, like I, I that's not once again not to be dismissive of it, it it's 
And once again, I think it's fine, but the the notion of the Academy Awards or awards in general being some metric or or you know way of measuring any kind of success or quality of a film is just I I can't really fathom that I, like. I don't know. Uh, the The reason it's getting a bunch of awards attention is because Netflix has a ton of money to spend on campaigns and like and send people screeners and shit. Like, see, that's what I think is important because it was always before it was always the Weinstein's and the Rudens that would go on these huge marketing campaigns where they're manipulating votes with the power of the dollar to try to get attention, and the whole purpose is to get to drive eyeballs for distribution deals or whatever else. So my question is like... What's nominated this year? Let me look them up. Okay, because while you're doing that, let me just kind of say why another reason why I think this question is interesting is because there's something about the the controlling of the narrative, right? So like um, in, in... in like political philosophy sometimes this is called extero conditioning like external conditioning right so like when you when you see all these lists on like whatever the outlet is that's like the best 10 albums of the year what it does is it kind of elicits this external metric these are the movies that can be taken seriously yeah 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 and so it's kind of like i I mentioned like three or four weeks ago when the yeah, so so there's something safe about this film, though. That's what makes there's yeah. something safe about I, this film. I, I mentioned this like a month yeah. ago, I think, on the Little Miss Sunshine episode, where I mentioned like how there was one anonymous Oscar voter who said something like, "No, I never saw Twelve Years a Slave. I just voted for it for Best Picture because that seemed like <laughs> yeah, yeah. that seemed like the movie that should yeah. win." And and, yeah. and I think that is instructive. I, I I don't say that to denigrate Twelve Years a Slave. Like I think that's a very good movie, um, but I think that is instructive in the way that these voters think about this thing. Is like, you know, how many how many times during the fucking like twenty twenty Democratic primary did you hear like Biden's the safe choice? <laughs> like Biden can get yeah, things yeah. done or whatever. Like obviously it was a crock of shit then. It's a crock of shit yeah. now. But like yeah. there is I mean, I'm looking at this list right now from this year is like Nightmare Alley, which I quite liked. Don't look up, which I wasn't crazy about, but is at least kind of transgressive. Um, Dune, which was a, a big hit. Um, Belfast is another one of those movies like this that you could you could just like see it handing it to them because it's it, it's just like, oh, yeah, that's the kind of movie that wins awards or whatever. Weep, weepy dramas that are really, really reductive of a certain moment in time. Um and elied much more interesting things that are happening on the margins of the film. So it's, it, it is just, I don't know. I, like this to me feels like I'm looking at the fucking 10 movies right now. This, this is the one that feels the most like an Oscar best picture winner, whatever that means. <laughs> like, it, just, <laughs> it just seems like, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, that'll be the one. Sure. Why not? Like, I remember I was, I was helping a friend move. This was years ago. And it literally, he had not even started looking for a new apartment the day that we were moving him out of his old apartment. And as we were driving to another friend's house where he was going to couch crash for a minute, we drove past an apartment complex that had a, you know, a sign in the door, you know, for rent, one bedroom, two bedroom, blah, 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 whatever. And uh, he, <laughs> he goes... Huh, maybe I'll live there. And it was just it was just one of those things like he could not have been bothered any less about his current situation and you know more power to him. But it, it, that energy just feels like this movie is just like, yeah, sure. I guess yeah, it'll be that. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> like no one no one cares about our stupid fucking party anymore. Nobody watches this dumb fucking award show. Yeah, it'll be that one. That one looks like the one. Sure. And it's going to be freaking huge for Netflix if they can boast. Because remember, there was a few there were a few years ago where they weren't even allowing Netflix to be in certain categories for recognition. And I think like films that can, like you couldn't have been like certain film festivals were like this can't be a film that was made for digital stream. It has to be a film that was made for theatrical release in cinemas. And so it was like I think the Sydney then film what this makes does, me has no such compunction, right? Well, I mean, I the Sydney Film Festival. Let <laughs> me tell the, you, you were on the jury about, this year, so you could probably shed some light uh, on the situation. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so it does. It, it, my cynical take on this is that there are a lot of dollars that are being spent 
to kind of like boost these platforms, right? To boost these these new forms of consumption. And so I, I wonder, right? Like if it's a good film and it's going to, to last I don't know, for 20 years in people's minds, 30 years, 50 years, if it's going to be in like the pantheon of cinema, um, that's one thing. But but like otherwise, it, it just makes me curious why certain films get so much narrative attention, you know, and why I open my fucking Twitter or when I go to a news source, like that's the film that gets talked about. And I'm always just curious. Like yeah. I, I kind of want to, yeah, I want to well, know like, like, I mean, what's going the, on. It's there. like the Green Book thing. Um, I mean, do you do you know time. the story behind that? Like how that ended up being such a major Oscar player? Well, let's let's just say this real quick. Let's wrap up the episode with this, and then we can't go too much longer. But yeah, let's <laughs> okay. let's let's end on this. Before let's end on this positive on a completely note. Completely pointless tangent. Um, yeah, yeah. So uh, Viggo Mortensen, who's a wonderful actor, did a couple movies with David Cronenberg: uh, Eastern Promises and History of Violence, two masterpieces, in my personal opinion. Um, David Cronenberg, who is a phenomenal filmmaker, one of my favorites, a Canadian filmmaker, um, he and Viggo Mortensen went up to the Toronto International Film Festival with those pictures, and Viggo Mortensen was was really big in that community at a time when TIFF was just sort of coming up in the festival circuit as sort of mm. a, a, a major a big uh, outlier. Yeah. Yeah. And so Tiff just loves Viggo Mortensen. And when uh. Green Book came out, they were like, hey, let's open the the uh, festival with Green Book because Viggo will come and he'll he'll glad hand everybody. And he's kind of like a local celebrity because of his work with David Cronenberg. And everyone was just so excited to see the new Viggo Mortensen movie in Toronto because he's such a hit with that, with that festival audience and those film writers and, <laughs> and those locals that it just played like gangbusters. And because Tiff at that point had kind of been elevated to one of the big Oscar prognosticators from that moment on that, like, I think it won the audience mm. award at Tiff. It was like, Oh, this might be the movie. And it, it's it, it's just it's shit like that. You just have no mm. you have no fucking clue. I mean, to bring it back to Twelve Years a Slave, there was I remember reading a review of Twelve Years a Slave out of a film festival, you know, six eight months before it was ever going to play for a mainstream theatrical audience. And the review of it, the first line of it, was literally just like, "This movie is going to win Best Picture at the Oscars." That's not me saying it deserves <laughs> to. That's not me saying it was the best movie I'm going to see all year. I just know for a fact that it's going to win Best Picture at the Oscars, and I just want to plant my flag on that right now. And, and mm. I just remember reading that review and being like, "Yeah, it's probably right." <laughs> like, there's just who who fucking knows how any of this shit is decided? It's all it's all about money and 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 what movie plays well with which audience and uh, which movie feels right and doesn't necessarily challenge the the core audience of voters who decide on these things. And I just, to bring it back to where I started with this movie, I just don't think it's all that challenging. I think it's a movie that has all the trappings of a very, a very deep mm. austere drama. But at the end of the day, you don't, you don't really have to chew on it all that much. You can leave the theater already feeling smart. And I think that's, that's that's key for a lot of people mm. who uh, who decide these stupid fucking beauty contests to bring it back to Little Miss Sunshine. Okay, so let's 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 put a button on this for this episode, and let's say next week for those of y'all that are going to tune in, we're going to talk about another film that is sure to elicit deep, deep, deep thought. We're talking about we're talking about the Batman. Now, hey, I say that with a little bit of snark in my tone, but I will say that the Christopher Nolan Bat man films were all really interesting with like uh the symbolism they were exploring and with the themes they were exploring and i think that there is something interesting about why we tell the stories that we tell about ourselves and so if we're not talking about westerns superhero films i think do have a lot of interesting archetypal and kind of conceptual stuff for us to explore so next week we'll be talking about the new the Batman film uh, starring Robert Pattinson and so yeah so just get prepared for that so make sure you fucking see that shit they should they should pay us royalties for advertising for our audience to go and see those films not, not sure if people that. if people will be able to see the Batman I think it's only playing in, in major cities uh, I, I think that's just a, a New York LA maybe it'll slowly roll out to some other theaters but um, 
you know, Robert Pattinson's kind of an indie darling, so I just don't think the Batman is on a lot of people's radars right now. Really? <laughs> but it's Batman. But it's Batman. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. Um, um, so cool. You're so too good before of an we get actor. out of here. Before we get out of here, uh, let me just remind you, check out uh, our Twitter. That's SMTM underscore P-O-D. I'm sorry there's some background noise. They're fucking sawing something, and usually a saw cut is like a couple seconds, but apparently this saw cut is lasting 40 seconds. Um, but check us out, SMTM underscore P-O-D. That's SMTM underscore P-O-D. Remember to email us, movies at wisecrack.co. Call us, 1-213-534-8807. Raymond, where can people find you on the internet? Um, actually, I want to uh, plug something really quick. Uh, I plugged this on Culture Binge this morning as well. Um, there's some uh, some really terrible stuff uh, happening in Texas right now. Uh, the governor of that state is a piece of shit. Uh, so I would encourage everyone to check out the Chan- the Transgender Education Network of Texas, or TENT for short. That's at uh, TransTexas on Twitter, or check out TransTexas.org for uh, more resources and uh, links to donate. Uh, I've also put, uh, I retweeted a couple threads of links to uh, to resources and other organizations on the ground in Texas who are uh, fighting the good fight to protect trans children and uh, trans affirming allies uh, in that state. Um, so uh, you can find that, uh, like I said, at Trans Texas on Twitter or uh, those threads uh, on on my uh, what's it called, my Twitter at Crematoria. Sweet, sweet, sweet. And uh, if people want to kind of track me down, it's Austin underscore Hayden on Twitter, AUS underscore H-A-Y on Insta. Um, I do a philosophy podcast called Owls at Dawn, and my co-host and I are philosophers by trade um, and by by education. We are not geopolitical experts, so we haven't done a Russia and Ukraine crisis episode. However, next week we've got an international relations scholar and a philosopher by the name of Sergei Prozorov, who I've done a lot of work on. Um, his work has informed a lot of my work. I've spent some time with him, and he's written a lot on post-communist Russia. Um, he's currently based in Finland, where he is a professor of international relations, but we're going to have him on to kind of delve into some of the deeper complexities. I know there's a lot of confusions and a lot of um, speculating about certain things, so it'll be nice to get somebody who definitely has a bit more of one personal experience, yeah, since he is um, born uh, of Russian national, um, but is also very critical and and analytical about, um, one, the Soviet Union, and then, of course, uh, as I said, post-communist Russia. So um, that'll be checked. uh, That'll be up in, I guess it'll be about a week and a half. So by the time this episode's live, maybe about a week or so. But yeah, so check that goodness out. Send us out of here, Raymond. Uh, Goodbye from... I guess the Oscars eventually the when this when, when this one racks up a bunch of trophies and uh, we all <laughs> and we all love it. <laughs> <laughs>